Welcome to Episode 3 of Season 2 of the Flower Pot Pen Podcast. This podcast is written and produced on Kure Wurrung land in southwest Victoria, Australia. It's been over a month since the last episode of this podcast was pushed out into cyberspace. Uh, it feels like this year has just disappeared. Um, I'm not sure where the days have gone. Uh, it's nearly Christmas. However, the urge to research, write up and record an episode has come over me, so I'd best take advantage of that. So let's get to it. In this episode, I'll be chatting about a couple of interesting things that have come into either my email or social media feeds. And then I'll be putting the spotlight on the third person to be included in my book project, a woman who lives locally to me, who has had a lifelong passion for native Australian plants. For the purposes of this podcast, and until I get permission to use names of people, uh, other than my family members, because it's uh, too late for them, <laughs> I'll um, be trying to keep the identities of the subjects private. If you do actually know me and you guess who I'm talking about, um, then I suppose that can't be helped. Anyway, on with episode three of season two of the Flower Pot Pen podcast. The first thing I'm going to look at is a fun plant fact. It's about a plant that can change the shape of its leaves to blend in with the plants around them. I know, doesn't sound like a true tale, does it? The plant in question is called Boquila trifoliolata. I think that's how you spell, uh, pronounce it, but it could be different. Um, it's a vine native to Chile and Argentina and the only plant in the family, here I'll just give this a go, Ladisabalaceae. Try saying that 10 times fast. Ladisabalaceae. Anyway, it's a special plant because it can change the shape of its leaves to match the plant that it is growing up for support. Studies have shown it can change its leaves to match leaf shape size and colour of over a dozen plants. Uh, mimicry is known in other plants. It's called mimetic polymorphism, but they are usually parasitic plants like the mistletoe, which can only mimic the eucalypt it lives off. Now the two main questions that come to my mind first are, why does it do it and how does it do it? Well, why is more than likely a form of protection somehow. Maybe hiding in plain sight makes it less of a target for herbivores. Plants are very adept at making themselves more likely to survive by any means possible. Thorns are the perfect example of this in other, th in other plants. Uh, let's face it, they're stuck in one place, so flight is taken out of the flight or fight equation. Fight or flight equation is usually how it's said but anyway the next question how does it do it hasn't been fully answered yet the most obvious answer could be that it picks up on the chemicals the closest plant gives out and somehow is able to convert its own chemicals to match that but the next idea is much more interesting in that some researchers believe the vine has an ability to see in inverted commas, the leaves of the nearest plant and can somehow change their leaves to match. 
I don't mean they see in the way animals do. Maybe sense is a better word to use. In any case, um, there are plenty of theories. Um, others include uh, microbes changing the plant's DNA or even neuron-like cells in the plant's root system, which would act as a brain-like structure. Both ideas open up a whole new way of looking at how plants survive so well. Anyway, if you're interested in finding out a little bit more about this incredible plant, a link to the article I was reading will be on the show notes page of my website, theflowerpotpin.com. That's all in lowercase in case you're trying to find it. Okay, staying on the theme of how plants have evolved with defence mechanisms in place for protection, um, examples of this are evident in lots of places in the home garden. Um, take, for instance, the humble citrus tree. Lots of citrus have very nasty thorns on them. Some hybrid forms have less or even none, but lots of species do have thorns. Interesting, interestingly, some only have thorns when they are young, and these slowly stop appearing as a tree ages. A Facebook post on a gardening site caught my interest as the poster posed the question of whether you are able to cut off the spikes on a lemon tree. Short answer, yes, you can. Although I'm not sure I'd bother. In fact, um, my lemon tree, which I've had in the ground for about five years, has some pretty vicious spikes on it. That, um, they definitely make pruning a heavy, a heavy glub heavy glove job. Um, I believe it's a Maya type, but I, I can't remember. Um, but after being in the ground for five years, it's finally started to give good crops of lemons, so that's all I'm really worried about. Uh, it's in danger of becoming one of those annoying trees that produce way too much for your own use, so you have to work out ways of sharing them around. Uh, some problems are good problems, some would say, though. Right, getting back to thorns as defence. I would say that this is one evolutionary device that serves many plants well. The scratches on my arms are testament to that. Okay, now on to putting a spotlight on a neighbour who has had many years' experience gardening and who has also been involved with creating native tree plantings in the spaces she lives near. I'll be reading out what she has written in response to a question sheet I have given to a few people so there is some continuity in the information I will be pushing into my book project. So here we go. Right. Gardens and gardening have been a most joyous part of my entire life. My father was a gardener par excellence. There was always a large vegetable garden and always flowers in the garden. I remember particularly roses, dahlias, zinnias, foxgloves, gerberas and violets. The rockery was a favourite plant a favourite plant, a favourite part of the garden uh, because the blue tongue lizard lived there. Of course, there were large areas of lawn with a sandpit, swing and a slide. I loved the garden. 
An added bonus was the house in an outer city suburb, outer Sydney suburb, adjoined extensive bushland. I spent much of my time either alone or with friends wandering into the bush, catching tadpoles in the creek, admiring and even picking wildflowers. I remember pretending banksia flowers were sheep and attempting to shear them with scissors. Now this is in brackets. This is a childhood reminiscence, certainly not recommended by my environmentally protective adult self. It was a delight to start my own gardening adventure after my 1949 marriage and the move to Newlet. We rented a little cottage that still stands at the foot of the mount. It has a small fenced area and my gardening began. Nothing spectacular, areas of lawn, a number of rose bushes, a bank of fuchsias on the south side of the house and a few veggies. I may try attempting to edit this, but um, it probably won't, so all these mistakes are going to stay there. Anyway, getting back to the story. The north side of the house faced into a valley with steep banks converging toward the crater. We fell in love with the house and never wished to leave it. After a lot of earnest persuasion, we were able to purchase a small block and have a house built below our original cottage on a corner of the main road and a side road. In December 1954, we had our own home and prospective garden to be converted from the paddock. We started by having the front stone wall rebuilt and a stone wall built along the boundary of the side road. As the prospective garden was bare and exposed, exposed to wind on all sides, we felt it necessary to plant trees as a buffer. If you can hear barking, that's um, our little charge at the moment, so I'll try and ignore that and keep going. The early garden was quite traditional. Lawn, flower beds, largely roses and colourful flowering annuals. There was, <laughs> there was no town water supply in those days, so we had a bore sunk, which is still supplying water for the garden. For household requirements, my husband dug and created a splendid tank holding 12,000 gallons. Um, if anyone wants to convert that to um, litres, uh, please let me know what that is. Always I carried a love of our native Australian flora, so I joined the Warrnambool branch of field naturalists and later also the Society of Growing Native Plants, now called the Australian Plant Society, and our garden has evolved with a mixture of natives gradually taking over. Of course, there have always been vegetables grown, and for many years I propagated native plants from seed collected in the Grampians and other bush habitats to be planted on our Glen Thompson property, where we planted 4,000 natives, 2,000 of which were propagated by me and 2,000 purchased from a native plant nursery. So that's the end of what has been written by my subject. But I will add that the writer has also been involved in planting native trees along a major road in the area which had previously been grazed. She has also been involved in the planting of a native garden in a small town near me, 
uh, which I have the um, extreme privilege of being able to work on and um, keep looking beautiful along with other members of the community. Uh, once again, it has been the very early experience of the writer that has influenced her love of gardening. Um, fathers and veggie gardens still remains a strong theme. Well, that has brought us to the end of episode three, season two of the Flower Pot Pen podcast. We're well into December at this stage, so by the time this is published, it will be time to say Merry Christmas to everyone. So, Merry Christmas. I will take a break with the podcast over the holiday season, but I will still be making regular blog posts. If you go to the flowerpotpen.com website and subscribe to my blog posts, you won't miss out on anything. So, till next year, 2023, take it easy, get out into a garden, either yours or someone else's, and stop to smell the roses. Bye.